Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's word, fellowship, and prayer. As you know, at the beginning of chapter 7, Paul started talking about the things that were concerning the church in Corinth. Remember, he used that language because there was a series of questions that the church had for Paul that they just didn't have answers to, things that were gray, things that were complex, things that despite the fact that this had been a thriving church in Corinth for eight years now, there was just answers that they didn't have. They needed principles in how to move forward in their faith. And so in the last chapter, we addressed the questions that they had concerning marriage And now we're going to be moving on to another tough topic, a topic with a lot of gray area, a topic that will require a principle-based approach, okay, not a policy-based approach. And we're going to begin by asking the question as follows, do I have the will to resist my wants for the sake of others? Do I have the willpower? Do I have the ability? Do I have the devotion to the Lord necessary? To resist the things that I want, the desires that I have in my life in order to prefer others over myself. Now, this is an interesting question because it affects the way that we perceive our own thoughts and actions in relation to other people, right? What what we think about the world, what we think about our reality, how how we perceive ourselves in relation to other people. And in a just do your own thing world, right? Just do you world. It only makes sense for us to convince ourselves that if we don't do exactly what our urges tell us to do, if we don't do exactly what we think will make us happy, that we're going to somehow traumatize our lives and we're going to miss out. I mean, that's the way that we think in our world today. In in a Laodicean culture, in a 2022 Christianity This is the way that we think, that if we don't do the the things, the compulsions, the urges that reside within us, the, the, the way our thoughts and our feelings provoke us, if we don't do those things, somehow we are going to be psychologically disturbed and we're going to miss out on the reality that somehow fate has for us, right? We're not going to be everything that we were intended to be, and that's clearly a lie, that's a lie. It's a, it's a lie. Biblically, it's a lie, and it gets exposed very easy. And so by asking the question, do I have the will to resist my wants for the sake of others, it immediately suggests that other people are more important than we are. They're more important than we are. That their perceptions are more important than our perceptions, that their growth is more important than our growth or our wants or our perceived needs. That their hearts and their minds are worth us guarding, are worth us laying our lives down for. That other people are more important than we are. So today's sermon is called Preferring the Weak. That's what we're going we're gonna to call today's sermon, Okay. And that's exactly what we're going to address. Let's pray, and then we'll read our passage. We're going to try to cover the whole chapter, believe it or not. See if that's possible. Okay? You ready? Okay. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you, and uh, we're grateful for the opportunity to be here. 
Um, that last worship song, <clears throat> Lord, you are worth our adoration. And I don't want to give too much away uh, in today's sermon because, you know, uh, you, pa- how pastors are, Lord. You know, there's got to be a grand ending uh, to the sermon. But the way that you behaved in light of my weakness, you are a God that prefers the weak. And by just looking to you and just remembering the testimony of your life, and if I just turn my ear to the pages of your word and I allow myself to hear your heart, I have everything I need in terms of how to act and behave. I have everything I need to know about what it means to lay down my life for the weak. And so, Lord, I pray that, that we would adore you today by taking your word seriously and learning from it. And learning what it means to truly have charity towards other people. To, to truly love them despite what we know. That we would, we would consider what is most profitable to the kingdom and to the heirs of Christ. What is the most profitable thing? That is what I will do. Even if it costs me something. And so Lord, I, I pray that you would help us with this. This is a big and lofty concept Please make it plain, make it simple for us. We pray it in Christ's name, amen. All right, chapter eight, verse one. Now, as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we have all knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. And if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things which are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him. And one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Howbeit, there is not not in every man that knowledge. For some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eat, eat it as a thing offered unto an idol. And their conscience being weak is defiled, but meat condemneth us not to God. For neither if we eat are we better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man see thee which hast knowledge, sit at meat in the idol's temple. Shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their, uh, their weak conscience... Ye sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth. Lest I make my brother to offend. 
So that's our passage for, the, for this morning. And we're going to start here in verse 1, and we're going to talk first and foremost about how we're prone to two different extremes, two extremes. Verse 1 says, Now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Okay, now... I want, to, I want to make sure that the context is clear this morning because this is kind of a weird, a weird topic. It's a subject matter that has a, 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 a definitely a cultural context that falls outside of our own. We don't really know much about this in our own social setting, right? So from the outset of this, outset of this chapter, we learn that there's another controversy that the Corinthian church faces that they need Paul's insight over. And, and that, that is the issue of whether or not Christians should be able to eat meat that has been previously offered in sacrifice to false idols. That's the dilemma. Kind of strange, right? Kind of a weird deal. Now look, the pagan Greek had all kinds of superstitions during this time period, okay? And one of the superstitions that they adhered to was this idea that evil spirits were everywhere. Okay, now we're on the same page there, right? But from their perspective, an evil spirit could inhabit even your meal. And that if you were to consume a meal with an evil spirit attached to that meal, that you too could become inhabited by an evil spirit. Okay, that's, that's weird stuff. Okay, Sounds like some of these trash movies that you guys watch. Garbage. Garbage in, garbage out. Sound like my mom. Right? Um, so that, this is what they believe. So the sacrifices that, they were, that were being made in the pagan temples were intended to ensure that their food was protected from the evil spirits. That was their focus. So a lot different than what we, what we recognize and see in terms of the, the Jewish temple and their sacrifices unto God, much, much different situation. Now, in a pagan city like Corinth, animals were being sacrificed every single day. And the priests would keep some of that meat for themselves. Okay, that's very similar to the Jewish uh, tradition as well. But a lot of it would be sent off to market. They would sell it to the market men, right, the, the vendors in the market, to sell that meat away so that other people could eat it. So at this time in Corinth, uh, and cities like it, temples also had dining halls. Okay, so they had, they, had their, they had their own McDonald's inside the temple. And so people would come and they would eat meat that had been uh, sacrificed to idols. They'd sit down for meals. That was a common thing. They had a dining hall. The Roman marketplaces generally sold meat that had been offered to idols. And if you went to a pagan friend's house, it was likely that you would be served something that had been previously offered to idols. And so this, this, this kind of meat, this tainted meat, was everywhere, right? This meat that had been offered to false gods, it was everywhere, and it was very difficult to avoid it. And so the question is, what do you do about this? That's the question. What do you do about it? It's kind of a strange and complex issue, but it had been plaguing the church, and they needed answers. Now, there are two extremes. There were two responses that were coming about within the Corinthian church. And so there was essentially two ideas on this subject matter. The first one was this. Don't eat it. Don't eat it. It's bad. Why? 
Because that food is an abomination because it has occult associations. It's an abomination before the Lord. And to eat this way is to be flippant as it concerns our relationship with God. Okay, this would have been true of Jews and Jewish Christians. They would have seen this commonly as an abomination. And so they would have worked very hard to avoid eating meat that had been offered to idols. In fact, there were Jewish marketplaces where Jews would go where they were ensured that they wouldn't get meat like this. Okay, they would go way out of their way to avoid this kind of thing. They didn't want to eat polluted food. And we can even see that this was a controversy in Jerusalem. If you guys remember in Acts chapter 15, when Paul stands before the, the, the council in Jerusalem, and they're making the determination about whether or not Gentiles could get saved through faith, right? Whether or not the gospel was for the Gentile people, and if they, they could accept Christ absent following Jewish tradition. There was this thing that James left Paul and his disciples with when he's like, okay, now... We're good with the Gentiles getting saved, but you need to let them know to avoid fornication and avoid meat that's been polluted by false idols. This is what he leaves them with. And Paul's like, okay, cool, I can do that. And so he goes on. But so this was a big deal. This was a big deal to them. And Greeks, too, would have had a problem because they'd grown up under a belief system that they now recognized as superstitious and false. And so now coming into the church and following Jesus Christ, they would have said to themselves, man, anything that I used to be associated with in terms of pagan worship and the temples, man, I want nothing to do with that. And so what do I do? Because everybody I know still worships that way. And when they invite me into their home, what am I supposed to do? Can I just sit down and eat, eat with them and hang out and break bread and minister to them? Or do I have to make a big deal about this and tell them that I can't come over? I mean, my family's going to eat in the dining hall at the temple, and I can't go sit down with them for dinner. And so it was a serious dilemma. And so the first position would have been one extreme and says, you shouldn't eat that meat. Do everything you can to avoid it. You don't want to be polluted by it. And the other extreme that we find here was people that would just say, hey, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Chill. Because there's only one true God anyway. All these, these false idols that you're talking about, this superstition, come on, get over it already. Man, we know that those gods aren't real. We know that those idols are false. There's one true God. And so don't be overly concerned about any of that. Just eat as you will. Do what you please. It's all good. And so that was the other position is don't worry about it. Just eat as you see fit. Now, in our world, we also run into issues like this. Now, you might think to yourself, issues like this. Nah, what? But we run into issues like this, issues that exist in the gray, in the complex, where there doesn't seem to be a clear-cut answer, right? And we live in a world like that, where there's a lot of things where you have to ask yourself really hard questions. And if we're not careful as Christians, we will often see our world in a very binary way, and, and everything will appear to be this or that, and we'll see the world in terms of extremes if we're not careful as well. And so we, um, let's walk through, how do we do that? How, how do we divide ourselves into extremes? Well, the first one is legalism. The first extreme is what we refer to as legalism. And this is the way it goes. Generally, this extreme starts with a pastor or a church culture 
that establishes a policy or a series of standards that are intended to insulate the church from a culture that they're afraid of. And that's, that's what we often call legalism. And so the definition for legalism is the excessive adherence to rules or formulas to produce the perception of spirituality or holiness. Okay, and so you'll see a pastor or, or a people within a church culture say that these are the rules and the regulations. And this is the way that we abide and this is the way that we act. This is the way that we dress. This is the things that we watch, and these are the things that we listen to, okay? And they set up these extra-biblical church customs to provide the perception of piety and to ultimately protect themselves from a world that they're afraid of. They're afraid of, they're afraid of what's out there. They, they don't understand. This is the thing about fear. You, okay, so... You know, the Bible tells us very clearly that we ought not fear, right? The only thing worth fearing is God. And so we shouldn't fear what the world has, okay? What's out there in the darkness, what's creeping out there in, in, in a secular world. We shouldn't be afraid of it. But the problem is, generally, the things that we don't understand, things that we're naive about, are the things that we're generally the most afraid of, okay? Which is why I'm so afraid of gorillas, and animals, and animals at the zoo, and, and dogs on the street that I don't know. It's because I don't, I don't know you. I don't understand you. I can't discern what a dog is thinking. I'm going to assume you want to gnaw my arm off. And so I'm going to walk. It's, look, listen, it's an irrational fear. I'm confessing that before you. Okay? My fear of, of animals is probably completely irrational. But it's sourced in a, the fact that I didn't grow up around animals and I don't understand them. And if you're honest with yourself, you don't either. <laughs> See, they're under the curse too, you know. They've got their own thoughts. They're doing their own thing out there. And you just let them sleep in your bed. But, but that's the, po the point is, is that we often, fear, we often fear things that we don't understand. And so for Christians, for a long time now, I mean, this goes, this goes way back to even, even Jewish faith. The Talmud and the writings of the, the, the rabbinical order were intended to insulate the Jews against a world that they were just simply afraid of. So they created all these little rules. Like on the Sabbath day, you weren't even allowed to carry a a match in your pocket, right? I mean, that was like, these are the rules. Like, you don't do these things and you got to walk and act this way. And it, and it produces a sense of piety, a sense of holiness, but the truth is, it's sourced in fear. And so, all we have to do is, is, is make a declaration, okay, about the world. And we got to, we have, you have to sprinkle some proof texts over that miscontextualized verses, just sprinkle that over the top, okay? And then all of a sudden you have standards and laws that are agreed upon by everybody in the church to abide by. An example of this might be the idea that a man should wear a suit and tie to church, which clearly I take very seriously, <laughs> right? But no, no, but seriously, that's a big deal to a lot of people. 
a lot of people. People that maybe even we associate with, okay? The suit and tie thing is a big, big deal. Or the electric music in the worship is a sin, okay? That a, that a strong backbeat on your worship set conjures evil spirits and promotes sexual promiscuity. I, I'm, I'm not lying to you. These are things. I'm not, these, I'm not making these things up. Or that long hair on a man is sin. Or that having a Netflix account is a sin. Now, all I want to say is, okay, okay, book, chapter, verse. Book, chapter, verse. Okay, but this is how people tend to respond, right? Is with legalism. That's how they respond over things that they don't tend to understand. Now, that was one of the dangers here in the Corinthian church was that everybody would walk on eggshells and be so afraid to live inside their... They're supposed to be a light in their dark culture to go and to win the lost, and yet they can't even associate with them and they can't even break bread with them because they're so afraid. Okay, that's one form of extreme. The other, the other extreme in our culture is what I would call license. License. The justification of excessive personal freedoms. Okay, this is where people who call themselves Christians seem to find ways to justify anything that they want to do, regardless of who it may hurt or how it may be affecting them spiritually. All right, so that's the other extreme. It's like, okay, well, everything's lawful for me. Okay, everything's lawful for me, and because everything's lawful, because I'm a believer and I've been saved from my sin, okay, I have license to go about and to do things, okay, I can have a Netflix account, and by the way, I can watch whatever I want on the Netflix account, right, and I can talk about what I watch, and I can, and I can do what I want, and I can dress as I want, and I can eat how I want anywhere I want, and I can drink how I want anywhere I want, because I have freedom, that's the other extreme, is it not? So if one takes this exact same list that I gave you, and because of their knowledge of the Bible and their personal freedoms, they flaunt those freedoms around, and they act, and they dress, and they speak, and they eat, and they live however they want, what do they gain by that? What do you gain by that? Except for just to say that you have the freedom to do it. That you somehow fall out on the side of freedom and knowledge. Congratulations. But I'm pretty sure that that's not the objective of the church. I'm pretty sure that has nothing to do with the mission. See, what is important to know is that culture changes from day to day, does it not? Okay? I turned 40 in a month. Okay? And I know that culture has changed a lot as I grow more decrepit. I start shaking my fist at culture. You've left me behind. Yeah? So culture changes from day to day. And, and the social constructs, more than ever, are changing so rapidly and so constantly. And, and people are being forced to adapt all the time. And, and, and it's, just, it's just evolving and mushing around. And everything's changing. Like one day you, people think one thing, and the next day they're not even talking about that thing anymore. 
They're rioting in the streets about something, and the next day, they're like, it's like it never happened. Things just move so fast. Does that sound old? Do I sound really old saying that? Are you with me, Eric? <laughs> so what is considered proper and acceptable among one people group may be completely improper for another people group. That's how culture works. So here's the point. Despite the fact that people are constantly changing, guess what? The word of God never does. It never does. Over the last 2,000 years, can you, can you possibly imagine all the ways in which every culture has changed and evolved in, in every part of the world, in any, every ethnos group? How things have changed and adapted and colonialism affecting this and that and things just constantly changing and yet the word of God stands the same, tried and true over time and it always applies to every aspect of life forever. It's amazing. So here's our key point. Listen, we have to understand this. The Bible provides us with principles, principles to navigate a complex and confusing world. It gives us the principles to do that. And really, that's what we've been doing so far in 1 Corinthians is providing principles from God's word that help us to navigate and figure out the complex and gray issues of our world. So what we must know is that the more we learn God's word, the more equipped we will be to navigate the constantly changing world that we live in. And we won't, listen to me, we won't have to frustrate the spirit by becoming legalistic. We don't have to do that. And we won't have to frustrate the spirit by succumbing to license for sin. We don't have to do that because we're equipped. And ultimately, that's the goal of MBT and of this ministry, Kaya, is to equip you in the word of God so that you can navigate what may be the most complex time in which humanity has ever lived. And I have to believe that the more you learn this book, that your discipleship process, that your process through LFBI, that your time in Bible study, that our time together on Sunday mornings, that our devotion to the work of ministry will ultimately prove out the fact that the word of God is just as relevant today as it's ever been. And that despite the fact that nobody even knows what their biological sex is, you can still live in a world and minister. Despite the fact that no one understands the difference between sober and unsober. Despite the fact that we live in a world where it's completely okay to, to, to defile your mind and act any way you want. You, believer, can still have the truth necessary to navigate it with confidence and without fear. Without frustrating the spirit by becoming a legalist and without frustrating the spirit by having license to sin and act however you want, okay? That's the goal of this ministry, and that's what we're gonna keep trying to do, so join us. So let's look at this idea of, of knowledge, okay? What, let's get back into the passage here. What, what, is, what good is knowledge? What good is it? Let's look back at our situation in verse one. It says, now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge, Okay, so did the church in Corinth have knowledge, biblical knowledge, 
about what a false idol was? Like, didn't they, they knew. Like, Paul's like, you guys are in the know. Like, you're smart. I've taught you this stuff. You've got, you've got this figure out. You're a group of people that's knowledgeable. See, the issue wasn't what they knew. They were aware of the truth as it had been taught to them. So verse 4 says, As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered and sacrificed unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world. We know that. We, we, we know that, right? You guys know that. I know that. We know that, church in Corinth. We have knowledge. We know that an idol is nothing, and things offered to an idol are nothing. We know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. For though there be uh, that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, okay, because we recognize also that in a, a Roman culture, there were gods that dwelt in heaven and gods that were supposed to dwell upon the earth, right, in, in terms of their, their understanding of false gods. And there be gods many and lords many. But to us, there, there is but one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are, are all things, and we by him. So the Christians who were receiving this letter were fully aware of the fact that idols were nothing, and they were vain. Psalm 115, verse 4 says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they, they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They that make them are like unto them. So is everyone that trusteth in them. Every false idol, whether it be in the image of a being or an animal, or whether it be your, your phone, okay, we know that it's nothing, that there is one God. And despite all the things that there are to worship in this world, they're really, they're really just nothing. They're, they're deaf and dumb and they have no power. And if you want to be like them, you can worship them too. But we know that they're nothing. We know they're nothing. Beyond that, the church members in Corinth knew that there was no authority or mystical power in the meat itself. Right? There's no, in, the, in the food, in the plate, in the platter, there was nothing mystical about that. Right? They knew that. Verse 8, But meat com- commendeth us not to God, for neither if we, we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. So whether their steak was, was medium rare, okay? Some of y'all like to cook your steaks well done. Shame on you. Right? <laughs> That's you, Eric? Eric's an, listen, y'all. Eric's an A1 sauce type of guy. So whether the steak was medium rare or well done, offered to gods, or grilled in the backyard, it had no power over them. They knew that. So, so no, Paul, Paul knew that the meat was just meat, and the Corinthians knew that the meat was just meat. But Paul's about to make a point that relies heavily on a concept that he briefly introduced earlier in our letter, and he'll introduce again later. 
And that's this, 1 Corinthians 6.12, all things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Now, we know that there are certain things in Scripture that are clearly identified as sin, and you do not have license to do them, okay? The last chapter, the bits on fornication there, it's not like Paul just forgot that for a moment, okay? We know that there are things that are unlawful, right? There are sins that are clearly sin in Scripture. But the point that he's making here is about those gray areas of life. Paul says that just because all things are lawful to me doesn't mean that I have the license to simply do them. The issue for Paul is not whether or not you have the knowledge or the freedom in God to do a thing. There must be a greater principle at work in our decision-making and our behaviors. We have to be guided by a principle bigger than it's right or wrong sometimes, right? Though there are things that are clearly right and wrong. Some things are a little bit more complicated than that. And we need principles to help us navigate that. So here's the next key point. Not every issue is understood in terms of right or wrong, but whether or not it edifies. That's how we need to, under, as Christian believers, we need, we need to sometimes, there are things worth being binary about. That's wrong. I will not fornicate with my girlfriend. That's wrong. I will flee from fornication because that's what the word of God commands me to do. I will not be unsober. I recognize that getting drunk is wrong. That's a sin. So I will avoid drunkenness. Okay, there are things that are right and wrong. Okay, but listen to me. We don't even need to think about things in terms of right and wrong if we choose to abide by the principle that some things just don't edify. And if it's not edifying to our brothers and sisters in Christ, if it doesn't build up, if it is not profitable for the kingdom, I don't do it. See, I let the Holy Spirit lead me and the word of God lead me principally in this life so that I consider things based on whether or not they're profitable for God and the people of God. So what Paul wants to explain is ultimately our knowledge on a subject matter alone is not enough to navigate the world, but we need understanding for others and charity to consider them in both our words and our actions. And so what I want to say to you, brothers and sisters, who are growing in your knowledge of God's word, and you're in LFBI, and you're, you're learning about all these things, right, about, about the Bible, and you're growing in your knowledge, listen to me, that is not enough to make you a good Christian. In fact, it could set you up to be an arrogant jerk. Okay? Knowledge is not the point. See, the point is whether or not you have charity, the charity necessary to live out that knowledge. And charity, charity means a love that is sacrificial and giving. Charity is the type of love that says, what I desire is not as important as what the body of Christ needs. That's what charity is. So 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 again. Now, as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge, but knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. And if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing, yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. See, knowledge is good. Knowledge has its place. But the warning is that knowledge puffeth up, 
Knowledge can cause arrogance and self-importance. And that's one of the biggest things, is this idea of self-importance. Ugh. I mean, there's so many of us, and men, men in particular, I think, struggle with this. Because we, we, there's so often we desire to, to be respectable and to be revered. In a culture that has really, in many ways, thrown away, thrown away our, our right to leadership. And so we struggle. And so we, instead, of, instead of being charitable, when we get knowledge, we tend to be arrogant because we think we have to prove ourselves. And this causes us to ne- neglect a proper perspective on other people. So any man that thinks he knows a thing or two, in God's eyes, that self-important individual knows nothing as he ought to know it. Paul is teaching us that what it means, uh, he's teaching us what it means to have charity for other brothers and sisters in Christ, and he's teaching us the principles necessary to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. So Paul addresses two characteristics in people that we should consider, okay? So now we're gonna turn our attention to the, the people that we want to edify, okay? And there's two different characteristics that he talks about here. And the first char- characteristic is those brothers and sisters that are just unknowledgeable of the word. Verse seven, Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge. Not every person knows the things that you know. Not every person's been trained the way that you've been trained. And if a church is growing in a healthy way, there are always going to be people who are just now beginning to grow in their knowledge of God's word. In this room right now, we have people who literally just started discipleship in the last week. And I, to be honest, let's take a moment to applaud that. Yeah? I, that's amazing. That, that, is, that is our life as a ministry. Right? That is who we are. That's what we desire. But as long as that ha- is happening, that means that the Bible is fresh to those people. And they're beginning to get their feet beneath them in terms of their understanding and how the Bible applies to their life. Consider that growing in knowledge and maturity. Considering that, we have to know that it's going to take time. It doesn't happen overnight. Did it happen overnight for you? Well, it's not going to happen overnight for them. So we have to be considerate of our brothers and sisters in Christ who may not have knowledge of the word of God the way that you do. And because of that, they're bringing their perceptions, what they do know, to the table. And you can either meet them there or you can act like a self-important jerk. You can either meet them there and take them by the hand and walk with them in genuine love or you can express all the ways in which you know better. You know, one of the things that I think we have a problem with sometimes in in a discipleship setting is that we work so hard at undoing things that people know and proclaiming all the things that we know that we leave people behind a little bit. And I've been guilty of this too. We have to be sensitive. We have to be sensitive to the things that people don't know. So we can't expect a believer to simply understand and know everything that we know overnight. No, when a person comes to Christ, they're only just beginning a journey that will last their whole entire life. And it's just our responsibility to encourage that growth by protecting them and nurturing them. 
That should be our perspective towards those that are unknowledgeable. Now, the other character quality that we want to address are those with a weak conscience. Now, these two things are tied together. The lack of knowledge and the weak conscience is tied, tied together here in the text. And this, this, this just, well, let's read it. It says, for some with, with conscience of the idol, unto this hour, eat it as a thing offered unto an idol. So they don't see the thing that you see about, about the false gods. They don't see that that's just, that means nothing. When they, if they were to eat a meal offered to a god, they would, a false god, they would see it as meat offered to an idol. And their conscience being weak would be defiled. It would condemn them. In other words, there are some who, if they were to eat something accidentally that was offered unto an idol, and then they found that thing out, their conscience would be defiled because they are weak. Weak in their understanding and weak in their faith and weak because of superstition. Now, we see the same thing in our church today. Brothers and sisters who've not grown in in strength in their faith. Because really what we're talking about, when we're talking about knowledge, you could easily just use the word strength. Okay, we've got those that are weak. We've got those that are strong, right? And what we have to understand is that, that, that there are people in our church that just have not come into full strength yet. And they're easily offended in their conscience. That's the result of weakness. So how do I know when, as a pastor, when, I'm, when we're talking about Kaya and I'm ministering to people in, in the context of this, of this body and I'm counseling with people and I'm, I'm talking with them, how do I know that a brother or sister is weak? Well, it's usually because they're easily offended. Their feelings get hurt easy. Now, what should I do about that? Hey, buck up. Quit acting like a baby. Right? I mean, I think this is kind of what some of the stuff Uriah was talking about, right, last week. No, that's not what I do. I, I meet them in that place of their offense, and I work with them even if it means I have to apologize and ask for forgiveness for something that my conscience doesn't condemn me for. Like, even if whatever happened was like, what? Like, I don't get it. I don't have to get it. Because I'm dealing with the weak. And I need to prefer them. I need to prefer them. So should we, should we just expect people to snap their fingers and overcome all their anxieties or misunderstandings? No. It's our responsibility to regard their conscience and choose not to be offensive while giving them time and space to grow out of their fear-based view of God. We have to give them time to grow out of that. So the question that Paul is asking the church in Corinth and us is, as it concerns the tough questions of our faith, the gray areas, will you choose charity or will you choose legalism? Will you choose charity or will you choose license? And so here's our next key point. Charity for God's people will teach us how to prefer God's people. Pretty simple, huh? Charity for God's people is going to produce preferential treatment for God's people. That's what it looks like. So if I love you, I'm going to prefer you. That's just the natural result, if I love you. And so if I'm not treating you with preference, then I'm not treating you with love. Because the two things go hand in hand. Does that make sense to everybody? The two things go together. So charity for God's people will teach us how to prefer God's people. Now, Let's let Paul teach us from, from the letter, from Scripture, what that looks like. You guys ready? Verse 7. Howbeit, 
There is not in every man that knowledge. For some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But meat commendeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. Now here's the important part. Are you ready? But take heed. Take heed. Be warned. Pay attention, Christian, that's knowledgeable, that understands God's word. Take heed. Lest by any means this liberty of yours being a stumbling block. Now, I don't know if I need to define that. It's a very literal, just imagine in your mind a block that you stumble over. Come over to my house. My house is full of landmines that I refer to as stumbling block. Ninja turtle action figures. Barbies. Okay? Cars. These are stumbling blocks by which I often hurt myself. (laughs) Take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man see thee which hast knowledge, sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? In other words, if your laissez-faire attitude or lack of concern about how you conduct yourself is difficult for someone else to process. Okay, you're, being, you're doing your liberty thing out and about in the world. You don't like that move? You're <laughs> not into that? And you're doing your thing, and you're exercising your freedoms because you, you know you've got it figured out, and you're... You and the Spirit are in tune, and you know what the Word says. But what you do and your actions and your behavior and your words cause someone else to stumble or cause them to say, hey, look, they're doing it. I can, I can do it too. I'm telling you, that's dangerous. See, the idea, idea here is that is that you might be producing license for excess in other people. The idea here is that that causing someone to offend their own conscience is actually your sin. (laughs) Well, that's on them. Whoops. I mean, I did... I I didn't mean to cause them to stumble. It was an accident. You know, it's just a bad situation. Now, listen to me. The word of God says, if they stump, someone stumbles over your knowledge and liberty, that their sin is actually your sin. You stand accountable for it. Your liberty may be perceived by other people as consent to sin because they don't understand it, because they don't have the knowledge, because they're weaker in their conscience. They might misperceive it, and it would cause them to believe that you were, cons- you were believer, leader, knowledgeable person consenting to sin. Your inattentive or apathetic behavior, your liberty, may produce sinful license in those you say you love. You say you love them. But because you, because you think you can do this thing, you might be causing them harm. Is that love? Is that, like, is that actually love? For you to put your desires and the things you think are okay above them? 
No, it's not okay. Verse 11. And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. Do you understand the gravity of that statement? That because of you, because of the decisions you make and that laissez-faire attitude, that the decisions that you make may cause someone to perish at the spiritual level. And that was a person that Christ intentionally stepped down out of heaven and came down to earth and lived a perfect life for and laid his life down and bled out for that person? He gave up everything for that person? And you say to yourself, well, I can eat and drink and do and say whatever I want to do. Man, God forbid that we would take that flippant of an attitude as it concerns God's people, that we would protect them. But when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. You become an offense to the cross, the very thing that saved that person. That's a big deal. It's a big deal. Now, we've been in Genesis in main service, right? So I feel like this was a good example. Remember the story of Abimelech and Abraham? We even talked about it today. We went through that again. Sam talked about it today. In Genesis, we just learned this story um, about how Abraham was afraid uh, that if people knew that Sarah was his wife, that they would kill him in order to marry her. Remember that? Weird situation. The Bible's got some weird situations. Weird deal here. Nah, my wife, she's my sister. Okay? And he's trying to avoid being killed because he's afraid if they, if they knew that they were married, they'd off him and then she'd be available. She'd be on the market. Okay, now, so what does he do? He lies. He lies. Now, it was just a half lie, wasn't it? Sam talked about that today. Sarah actually was his half-sister. Okay, don't, before you get grossed out, again, we're talking about a generation away from a, a, a bloodline that began with Noah. Party on the street. Okay, and so it was different. It was a, genetically, the world was different at this time. Okay, we won't get into all that. But the point is, is, that, is that he told this half lie and he set Abimelech up to sin. He, he set, he, his decision to do that in his fear set up another person to sin. And so in the middle of the night, you know, so Abimelech's like, okay, cool. Then I'll take Sarah and she'll be my wife. And he brings her in. Okay, but that night he has his vision from God, this voice speaks to him, it's God's voice, and says, hey, bro, that's Abraham's wife, and if you touch her, I'm going to freaking kill you. So don't, so stop right there. If you put your hands on that woman, you're done, brother. And so Abimelech comes to Abraham, and he's like, dude, what did you do to me? Like, why would you put me in this predicament? I mean, your decision almost caused me to stumble and fall before the living God. What about, what about Jonah? Jonah, 
goes down to Joppa, gets on the boat, just casually running away from God, gets on that boat, all those other guys on the boat, they're not, they're just stupid. They're just unknowledgeable of God, right? And they have weak consciences. You can see that all over them in the first chapter of Jonah. And he gets on that boat and he puts all of their lives in danger because, if it, because he, he is doing what he thinks is right. Man. We can do that to people. It's not right. And so here's our next key point. Negligent behavior, regardless of how innocent it is on your part, okay? Regardless, regardless of your own conviction, negligent behavior can harm younger believers. Real straightforward, right? So we've got to think in terms of other people. There's got to be a shift in the way that we think. We have to think with a charitable lens, we have to begin to see people the way that God sees them in order to function in terms of edifying rather than right and wrong. Edification rather than right or wrong, right? 1 Corinthians 12, 12 says, For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one, uh, of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. This is your body. And what you do and you think and how you behave affects, it affects the whole. It has repercussions. That's how it's supposed to be. So that when I joy, I have, I have joy in my heart, you have joy. And when I suffer, you suffer. But here's the deal. When this, the same principle applies that when one person chooses sin, it harms, it harms the whole body. Because we can't be what we're supposed to be if you're not in God's blessing. If you're not living in a, a fruitful life. It hurts everybody involved. So we must be committed to preferring others because we're, we're uniquely entwined with one another. We have to learn how to prefer others in love. That we would rather, listen to me, that we would rather physically die than cause another person Spiritual harm. I mean, that's what Paul says here. Look at verse 13. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. Like this dude is saying, if eating causes my brother or sister to stumble, if doing anything that would cause them to stumble, I would stop, I would rather stop eating completely. That's a fairly extreme position. But he would, rather than see someone offended, now, listen, you can offend in your legalism and you can offend in your license. You understand? You can offend in both ways. Paul's point is here, I would rather die than to see Mason or Caitlin or Duncan or Melissa or Carlos suffer. I would, I would rather die than offend them. So what does that mean? What, what are the implications of that? Okay, the implications are this. 
Every one of us needs to learn the word of God so that we can learn to love the way that God does. And when we learn to love the way God does, we will very naturally put other people over ourselves and we will stop fighting for our rights. If that's what will happen. And so we have the perfect example in Jesus who gave up a throne, like everything was good for him. And he, he put on the body of a man, the fashion of a man. And he walked around in corruption. And all, just like what Uriah was describing last week, he suffered, he suffered all of those horrific things, the beating and the, and the, the, the name-calling and being spat upon. Because he preferred you. over himself. He created the whole, the whole universe. And yet, and yet, think about how stupid our sins are. Think about how weak in conscience we are. Think about, compared to God in terms of knowledge, how much, how much weaker we are in terms of our understanding of what we know. We know nothing. We are the weak. We are the unknowledgeable. And he chose to give up everything to meet us right where we were and to prefer us even over his throne. In the garden, God, if this cup could just pass, if we could just get this done another way, I would love that. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And he gladly took the cross. He bore our shame. He bore our weak conscience. He bore our lack of knowledge. He nailed it to the cross and died for it. Are you willing to do that for your brothers and sisters in Christ? That's the real question. I want to invite Seth up so that we can do an invitation. And this is what the invitation is going to look like. First of all, now, now listen to me. Listen to me. This is the, the decision-making moment. And so don't, again, I'm glad that you learned some things. You're ready to go. But listen to me. This is the point of decision. And there's two decisions that need to be made today, I believe. The first decision is this. If you're a Christian and, and, and you're growing in your knowledge of God's word, but you recognize in you that there's a tendency still in, within you to kind of get your own way, and like you have, you have a tendency to kind of be a know-it-all, and you have, a, you have a tendency to let pride and your freedom and your liberty and your understanding maybe even of God's word cause you to act like kind of justified, why don't you repent of that? Why don't you just take some time like to pray and just say, God, my desire is not to be right or even to delineate between what's right and wrong. My objective is to use your word to edify people. And it's your job to work that out in them. So Lord, 
forgive me of my arrogance and help me, help me to love people the way that you do. That's some of you. And here, here's the, the other group that I want to talk to is that there's some of you in this room today that this idea of this kind of sacrificial, sacrificial love is only just a vague and distant concept. And the reason is because you've never actually yourself accepted Jesus Christ for what he's done. Like you, you've never actually gone before the living God and said, Lord, I, I recognize that Christ died for me, that he gave his life, that I might know him and that I might be forgiven of sins, that I might be liberated. I know that you did that for me. I accept you as Lord and I repent of my sin. Now we refer to that as being born again. We refer to that as salvation. It's a decision that a person makes. It's a free will decision that you get to make when you, when you confront the terms of the gospel. Yes, Christ did do that for you. But the gift of salvation is as only as good as your willingness to receive it. And so the question for you, if you've never received Christ as your Lord and Savior, would you make today the day of your salvation? And, and as we pray and as we worship, there are going to be people lined up here across the front. Go grab a hold of them and ask them for prayer. Ask them to meet with you. Ask them to explain what the gospel really means. Do not leave this place carrying your convictions in your back pocket. Grapple with them. Okay? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that you are a God that's distinct among all gods and that you gave your life for us and you are the one true God. And no man cometh to the Father but by you, Jesus Christ. You are the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you. And Lord, I ask that you would give us today, those that are convicted of sin, give us a way to you, whether that be through confession of sin for the very first time or just, Lord, a practice of relationship with you. Would, you. would you lead us to do what's right before you and before your word and before the spirit of God? Help us, Lord. If there's anyone today that does not know you, Lord, call, call them out and let them hear their name and let them know that they're loved and that you're waiting for them and that you care for them and that your love is relentless and that your, that your pursuit is sure. Help them to see that today. Be with our ministry. Make us strong. In Christ's name, amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.com. Dot L I V E.